Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Episode 5, Power and Reality in the Midst of Fantasy. My guest this week is Kelly Braffitt. Kelly is the author of the Borderlands novels, including The Broken Tower and The Unwilling, as well as the novels Save Yourself, Josie and Jack, and Last Seen Leaving. Her writing has been published in the Fairy Tale Review, Post Road, and several anthologies. She attended Sarah Lawrence College and Columbia University and currently lives in upstate New York with her husband, the author Owen King. Well, I am so excited to have novelist and friend Kelly Raffitt here today to read to us a little bit from her brand new book, The Broken Tower. And if, in fact, I think it's the first three pages or so, which very much set up the myth of the book, you might say. And then we're going to talk about all the ways that it echoes through today, all the ways in which maybe there's some mythic echoes in here. Kelly, I'm so glad to have you with me today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. The bit that I'm going to read is actually the preface to the book, which is a summary of the previous book, because The Broken Tower is actually a sequel. And in the interest of not leaving everybody who did not read the sequel completely at sea, we did a quick summary, but I did write it in sort of a mythic, mythic kind of voice. So preface. Once there was a wealthy lord whose family ruled a land flowing with natural power. Each person who lived in the lord's kingdom could access the power, which made their lives easier in a thousand small ways. One day it occurred to the powerful man, who was called Lord Martin, that a thousand people with a little power each might well be a match for one man with a lot of power, and this idea terrified him. So he called the smartest men he knew to his great house in the city of Highfall, set them to work in a tower, and ordered them to find a way to bind the power so it couldn't be used against him. In this, they were successful. They bound the power, but they destroyed themselves and part of their workroom along with it. After that, the land became a sad, grim place. Lord Martin was soon called Mad Martin because he could never rest easily, but he and his heirs ruled for many generations. And then, one cold, bleak night across the mountains and on the other side of the continent, a traveling magician named John Slonim stood on a makeshift stage and reached into a hat. But instead of the paper flowers he'd stashed there, the hat burst forth with real flowers, lush, brilliant flowers that spread in ropey vines across the stage, even though it was the middle of winter. Like an overfilled water skin, the binding had sprung a leak. The bound power flowed through the magician and through dozens of others throughout the land. For the rest of his life, he traveled the continent, collecting those others together so they could learn to use the power. Because there were so few of them, the power was stronger in each of them than it had been in anybody before the binding. And over time, with careful management, it grew even stronger. Those who wielded it came to call themselves the Slonimi and the power in the work. Each of them was born with a unique identifying symbol called a sigil that could be used to join their minds together and access each other's memories. They figured out all over again, that many people who each had a small bit of power could accomplish great things, 
and the great thing they wanted to accomplish was to unbind the power and bring down the empire Mad Martin's heirs ruled. So they chose their own heirs carefully. After many more generations, a child was due to be born among them in whom they hoped all of their power was gathered. Before the child was born, her parents traveled to the great house in Highfall, where Mad Martin's heir, Lord Elvin, still lived. Through enormous hardship, they made it beyond the high wall of the great house, where they both died, but not before the child was born. By absolutely no coincidence whatsoever, the wife of Elvin, the current lord of the city, gave birth the same night to the newest of Mad Martin's heirs. By absolutely no further coincidence, the midwife brought in to assist her was Slanimi. When both children were born, the Slanimi midwife bound them together so that what one suffered, the other did. The midwife disappeared from history, but the Slonini child, a girl named Judah, remained. To protect Elbin's heir, Gavin, she was raised alongside him. Two years later, they were joined by Gavin's younger brother, Theron. When Gavin and Judah were eight years old, a girl from a family of minor aristocrats, Eleanor of Tiernan, was brought in to serve as Gavin's betrothed. Judah and Gavin developed a way of using their bond to communicate, a code scratched into their skin to send messages to each other. Together, the four young people grew to a weird, halting version of adulthood. Tradition and politics dictated that Gavin would rule the empire, Ellie would marry him and bear his children, and Theron would command his army. Judah's only job, though, was to survive so that Gavin would. Neither Gavin's father nor the seneschal who managed his household understood their strange connection, but they understood that Judah must be kept close and tightly controlled. When she showed an interest in reading, the library was banned. When she fell in love with the stableman, Darid, the seneschal sentenced him to death and had her caned. The more time passed, the more she resented her fate. As the completely unwarlike Theron resented his, and the smart, ambitious Ellie resented hers. Only Gavin, living in a world created for his amusement, was happy, and that didn't last. Gavin's father was determined to break the bond between Judah and his son. To that end, he waged war on the Nali, a nation of people known for the uncanny mental connection between their fighters. While capturing a Nali leader, he was injured in a coup perpetrated by his own men and died soon after returning to the city. With him died the lavish world of courtiers and luxury inside the house, and into the old man's place stepped the seneschal, whose vision for the house and the city surrounding it was very different than the one Mad Martin and his heirs had built. The seneschal didn't want to break the bond between Gavin and Judah. He wanted to understand it, to control it, and most important, to replicate it so their scratch code could be put to use over a broader network. The seneschal thought the Nali leader was the only one who might know how the bond worked, and so he kept the prisoner alive. In the empty, looted house, the four young people worked to eke out something like survival. When she discovered that Darid hadn't been murdered after all, and that Gavin had known and pointedly not told her, Judah fled to an abandoned tower in the oldest part of the house. The house magist, Nathaniel Clare, who lived in the city with his young apprentice, Belinda Dovetail, told the seneschal he could convince her to come down so that the seneschal could experiment with the bond, so the seneschal agreed to let Nate into the house. But Nate had no intention of bringing Judah down from the tower, which was, of course, the same tower where Mad Martin's scholars had bound the power so many years before. Nate was Slonini, and he had come to the city for the sole purpose of teaching Judah about work so she could complete the unbinding. He taught her to access the energy leaking from the knot Mad Martin scholars had tied all those years ago. The tower wouldn't let her die, he promised, but the unbinding would require the death of all of Mad Martin's heirs, 
and the only two remaining were Theron and Gavin. As Ellie, unknowing, held off the seneschal at the house gate, Nate killed Theron himself and urged Judah in the tower to slit her foster brother's throat. Instead, she jumped, because Nate had said the tower wouldn't let her die, and she didn't. Nate was sent to prison, and Gavin and Ellie were spirited out of the city by the seneschal's men, but Judah knew only a timeless white. When the world finally began to form around her again, months had passed. She was a long way from home, and everything she knew was different. And there the story begins. And there the story begins. And, you know, horrific spoilers for the first book, by the way. Yes. And I still highly recommend that listeners pick up the first book, The Unwilling by Kelly Brathett. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I always say I don't mind spoilers and stories because you still get to enjoy the ride. And I would love to imagine that all of your readers have such excellent memories that they're going to just keep all that in a little steel trap and they're not going to remember. Yeah. But I understand there are still young readers who have an amazing capacity to remember all the things before life has its way with them. But as a woman of four decades plus, I can say stories are wonderful. And I remember parts of them and uh, well, not all. <laughs> To be fair, the book did come, The Unwilling did come out in February 2020, which as we all know was approximately 87 years ago. So I think this summary was, I sort of kicked a little bit about having to write it because I felt like after writing the book, it felt sort of artificial is the wrong word, imposed perhaps. But at the same time, I always need those summaries, particularly with long series with a thousand characters and Right. multiple years between volumes as this one was so right and it, it was sort of fun to get it all straight in my head too yes and as someone who finished reading the book this morning and who read this you know initial preface maybe two weeks ago a week 10 days ago I appreciate even more what's in that preface after having read the whole book because it really does contain it really interestingly and I love the way that power is repeated so often in that sense of, I guess it's setting the reader up for this is one of the big themes we're going to explore in this book. But sometimes it's, there's something to be said for that offering it in a tale that says, this is where we're starting. This is sort of where right. the, one of the central knots of the book is going to be. And then of course, this book's about so much more than that, but I'd love to start with power and where that, where that sits in the book and where that sat in your process of what you were thinking about as you started sketching out this world. Well, it's funny. I had not thought until you just said that, that it was in a way sort of a relief to be able, because so much of writing is about subtext, right? And this is my fifth book, I think. And the first three were not fantasy novels. And so the subtext was everything. And it was sort of refreshing to just be able to come out and say, here is what you are looking at. Here is what you should be paying attention to, which is something that I've never got to do before. You just sort of toss the books out into the world and then hope that people read them the way you wrote them or somewhere in the ballpark of where you wrote them. Power is has always been the thing that I come back to. And my very first book was about power dynamics. And I think it is a, if I should someday be lucky enough to 
you know, have somebody do a retrospective of Kelly Braffitt's work, which honestly, <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to happen. But still, I think that the lit 101 essay to be written about my work is definitely issues of power in the novels of Kelly Braffitt, because it's something that I'm very interested in. Who has power? How do they get power? And most importantly, how do the powerless react to that power? So I think that all of my books in one way or another are about this process of discovering power. And it's funny because the power referred to in the preface that I just wrote is actually not the key, you know, the magic power in a fantasy book should be the key power, but it's really not. It's about sort of who has the power to to stand up and stand forth and sort of, this is a very unfantastical phrase, but to buck the system and, Mm. and sort of find the power within them that, you know, may or may not have anything to do with the magic hat full of flowers but is still is I think more important and more importantly more accessible to everybody who doesn't have that power right so first I want to just say I'm very excited that when they start teaching Kelly Braffitt 101 you said it here (laughs) first that the core of your work is about power so they're going to have to put the not work storytelling podcast on the syllabus so thank you for also immortalizing my work. You're totally right. And then there'll be like side classes in the literary analysis of Marisa Gowdy. It'll be fantastic. And you know, it already started in that I released my book in February of 2020. And now I'm releasing this new project in February, 2020, right when in 2022, right when you are putting out your book. So we're already walking side by side. Maybe they could do a course about both of us. I think it could be pretty damn cool. I think, I think we should propose that. I think, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. There's some mythical university (laughs) that wants this and maybe, well, (laughs) it kind of to loop back to what you had just said that it's both a mythical university and a very real one at the same time, because the reason why I love this book as much as I do is that it is both very much about bucking the system in a very real world way. And it is also deeply, fabulously fantastical. And your book allowed me to feel capable and smart. And as if I was reading a book that was as much about now, which as you and I were saying before we started recording, I really have not yet had a chance to read a pandemic book yet that you wrote this in Mm -hmm. the midst of all the things. And this book Mm -hmm. is so much about that without ever having to say the C word or the V word or even know what one person briefly wore a mask to disguise themselves. And I noticed it only because now we notice when people wear masks, but they were totally fine with the air. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, I had not thought about that because as I said to you before, the book was outlined before the pandemic because I outlined it very early on, but I definitely wrote it while deeply steeped in the pandemic so I can't consciously say, oh, well, yes, this happened. And then, but right. I think that the overwhelming sort of sense of helplessness and threat. Now, there, now there's a selling point for a book. Welcome to my book. It has an overwhelming sense of helplessness and threat. <laughs> but that, that, definitely, that definitely was part of the pandemic, the sense that sort of, particularly, I think, in 
the the story is told through multiple perspectives, not an overwhelming number of perspectives. Not we're not talking mm-hmm. like Game of Thrones here, right? But one of them is this young girl named Bindi who is living in the city, and I think that she, more than anyone else, sort of carries with her that sense of my world has changed, and I'm not sure what to do in this new world, and I'm not sure what's safe, and I'm not sure who I can trust. Mm-hmm. And she's she's very young, which is interesting because she grew up in the world before the revolution, before the coup, and. So I think that switch from like previous world to new world is in some ways stranger for her than it is for all of the adults who have seen the world change before, perhaps not in such a profound way, but. Well, in that similar, I know I've made this comparison for children today in that sense of a seven-year-old has worn a mask for 25% of her, the life she remembers. And that just becomes so much more profound when you're just even just playing the numbers game. No, absolutely. And I remember on Halloween when we all went out trick-or-treating that the younger girls, the younger children that we were with had not gone trick-or-treating in recent memory and were not quite sure how it all worked. Right. They hadn't been for years. Right. Because we had skipped the year when we could have gone in 2019 because we were afraid of the weather. Look at us, how foolish we were in 2019. Yeah. that Foolish, foolish us. Because they had been four. They had been four. So they had like a vague sense of it, but they were both very like, we knock on the doors, really? We have to hustle this hard for the candy? I thought the moms just (laughs) gave it to us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you know, in this kind of spirit of come read this book, it's about an incredibly difficult time in history. There's ways in which you know, and, and also this idea of, of children, because there's a huge role that children play in your books. And sometimes they're no longer children, but are still seen that way because it's so much about inheritance and generations and who carries on. And when the elder generation doesn't necessarily notice that the youngins are coming in, into their own and are starting to come of age. But there's another group of children in the book that there was just one line that just it's a very difficult paragraph, but I really needed to hear it because I think it's what we're all thinking in the back of the head. Why is everything horrible? Ida said, and Corsa was shocked to see that her eyes were filled with tears. The orphan house was horrible. The streets are horrible. This entire place is horrible, except for us. What's the point of living so we can experience more horribleness? The point is, Corsa said gently, to try to make it less horrible. That is so pandemic. Ooh. Yeah. I didn't even realize when I wrote that. That I'm feeling a little teary now. Mm-hmm. I don't often get teary over the stuff that I write. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I think that's very much, I mean, when I wrote this book, not only was it the middle of the pandemic, but there were a lot of other things going on. <laughs> And I think that definitely that sense of why is everything so horrible? Why is everybody working so hard to make this as horrible as possible? Definitely sort of permeated the book, like not just pandemically. Well, I mean, the pandemic and politics all got braided together, but 
So I want to shift gears a little bit and bring in another thread because you're talking about this idea of braiding. And I, it, I do love the way you pull in. I think it's three different narratives that get braided through. But there's also the way I was, because of course, you know, once an English major, always an English major, looking at the themes, which have become more important as we help seventh graders with their English homework. But the way in which power has such a multifaceted meaning, but is like the big capital P word. Another capital letter word in this is work. And I thought it was so interesting how you make that very much part of it's the magic and it's the particular essence of this book. And it's also a four letter word that just about all of us are engaged in every day and in every way. And I just thought it was so interesting how power and work are words that you keep playing with, working with throughout and how it gave me an opportunity just to kind of sit with that word work in a new way. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, you know, from this sense of working, like we did a working, like an old magical sense. I didn't want, when I was coming up with the system of magic, of course, there's these wonderful, all these wonderful books out there, these glorious systems of magic, you know, my, my, you know, just read Garth Nix's Sabriel, which of course has a beautiful system of magic with all of these bells and they all do different things and that's gorgeous. And I knew that I could not come up with something that intricate and sort of complex. That's just not where my skill set lies. So instead I focused on sort of the practicality of logistically speaking, how would this power came through you? Like, how would it move and what what would it do? And how would you be able to access it? And there's this notion, there's a lot of, there's a sort of fairly gory ritual that goes along with work in the book, the, the magical system work, not the, you know, factory labor work. Although there's some blood involved in that too, but there's a very gory ritual that goes along with it. And Several times my main character, Judah, sort of thinks, I'm not sure all of this ritual and hullabaloo is necessary. Mm. I I feel like maybe we could do it without, we could just access the power directly without all of the ritual and hullabaloo and rules. and, And again, this is something that I'm sort of just thinking through now, but I wonder if there's also a connection to the other kind of work in the book which is the factory work. Mm-hmm. You know, the book was just, just got a review from Publishers Weekly, I want to say, and they talked about it as being a capitalist dystopia, which is not something that I had considered, really, when I was writing it. I hadn't thought about it as being a capitalist dystopia, but it really is. Mm-hmm. The Seneschal who's running the city has this vision of the city as being, he talks about it several times as being a machine that has to be allowed to run as fast and as far and as hard as it can. And all of the workers and all of the materials are just fuel that goes into this machine. So there's something there too, like the work itself becomes sort of all wrapped up in things that are not anything to do with the work. You know, like the act of making paper has nothing to do with all of the factory politics that are happening or all of the the sort of financial machinations that are happening on an upper level. I really, I, I feel like so many fantasy novels throughout 
history have had to do with kings and queens and princes and lords and heirs and so forth. And, and this one obviously does too. But I also really wanted it, part of it to happen on the ground, like in the city. And this is what people's lives are like. And these are not particularly special people. Like they're, they're special because everybody is special. But Bindi is, you know, one of a horde of children who sort of roam around the street. And she just happens to meet this man who happens to be on a mission and, you know, is sort of, they're just sort of trying to fumble their way through. And the same is true for Judah and her magic. Like she, she doesn't really know what she's doing. She's been taught all of these rules and regulations and rituals and things, and she doesn't quite believe in them, but sometimes she sort of has to cling to them anyway, because she has nothing else. Mm. And it's, everybody's just sort of trying to find their way past the horrible of the current moment into right. something better. Yes. Yes. And that sense that I love how you kind of broke out of those complicated systems that come with a lot of fantasy, which I think can be delightful and deeply imaginative. And as you're speaking, I'm reflecting back to my own study of mythology and where so much of all of these ideas are sourced, right? Because we look back to those stories and kings and queens and, and gods and monsters and all these different beings and who had a chance to have their story fully told. Were they, mm -hmm. did they become the chosen one because their story got told or was the story told because they were already the chosen one? So often becomes part of the question. But I'm also thinking, because I remember when you would occasionally send me a text and ask to borrow like books on witchcraft and spells that I had from my like when I was a baby witch 20 years ago library <laughs> and still keep somewhere, you know, around in the house. And the degrees of which sometimes magic is just elemental. And it's really about because I mean, there's such that sense of there's an elementalness to this work too for you, where yes, there's very there's some complicated pieces, but it comes back to the elements of creation themselves, which really to me rings very true. Cause I think it's somehow in my own internal mythos and what I believe in. It was sort of like, yeah, I could see it working that way. Absolutely. But I'm thinking back to thinking about the mythology that I've read and studied. And it's very rare that you would ever get, if at all, a complicated description of how ritual worked or why, you know, this cauldron was used on this day with this spear next right. to this sword. And in some ways it's because that would have been perhaps rarefied knowledge that would not have been written down or told to the priest. Or extremely common knowledge. Right. Like, of course. Obviously. Yeah. We know that that cauldron represents water and renewal and that you would use it in this way or that. Sure. So it just makes me think about the beautiful and modern complications that we layer onto and into story and that maybe they're, I mean, I think is they're not always all that necessary to get us into, we have power and we have work, and this is going to weave a whole world for us in this without having gotten into the ninth degree of how the Slonimi worked their magic. Yeah, that part was actually not that interesting to me. Mm. So it's, it's funny because you know, there's this sort of fairly gory ritual that they go through. But in a way, it, I, I was just thinking, okay, what do they all have with them at all times? What can they do? Because they're travelers. 
they don't have giant alchemy labs and, you know, places where huge ritual halls and cathedrals and things. And a lot of them are spies or, you know, they're undercover or they're sort of working in secret. So what can they do with a minimum of fuss, with a minimum of material so they don't have to set up an altar and they don't have to light a fire and they don't have to burn this herb and that herb and the other herb. They just have to draw a little bit of their own blood and draw a picture and that pulls them in. I mean, I guess if you really wanted to be very sort of deep about it, you could say that they find the power within themselves and not with trappings. But I have to say, I wasn't thinking that deeply about it when I did it. I was just trying to come up with with something that could be done easily logistically anywhere. And that is a great secret of <laughs> that I think many writers will not tell you, is that when it comes off as being incredibly deep and profound, a lot of the time, it's just what works best mechanically. It's also a kind thing you do for literary critics and, you know, people who have master's degrees in English to make us feel important and deep that we found all of the hidden secrets that, of course, are locked inside of you, just like it's, the blood magic. It's a favor I'm doing for all those 18-year-olds in mm-hmm. Kelly Graff at 101 so that they have something to write their papers about. <laughs> yeah. so you said a few minutes ago, though, you were talking about whose stories get told. Mm. And of course, the conventional wisdom and probably the true wisdom is that the history is written by the victors, right? But I have to say that I am like chronically and in a lifelong sense haunted by all of the people whose stories did not get told. Because as a woman, I am very aware that had I been born 500 years earlier, I may never have learned to read. Mm -hmm. And that really does bother me in a very visceral way. And even there's a, even in a non gender related way, there's a character in the book whose name is Anya. When they meet her, she's actually a prisoner, but she's also incredibly nearsighted Mm -hmm. to the point of being blind. I myself am incredibly nearsighted. I cannot see, you know, you are looking at me right now with two layers of vision correction on because, and I'm very aware that again, if I had been born 500 years ago, I would have like walked off a cliff or, you know, been eaten by a bear or something. And that's another categorization of people whose stories have not been told. Like what about all of the people, you know, that it's, it's really it's haunting. And I think that in this book, I really wanted to sort of find some of those people whose stories would not have been told. That group of children you were talking about, Ida, who was talking about how horrible the life her life was. She is that group of children. They are all children that had been discarded. Their stories right. never would have been told. Yep. I'm so glad you mentioned this because on page 394, the only thing I underlined in the book, because I'm like, oh, Kelly signed it to my family. I shouldn't write in it. But <laughs> all of them moved through a world not made for them, adjusting in whatever ways they could. Yep. And there's so much to you, uh, so many underrepresented people and these differently abled children. But that just struck me as such a a sensitivity that we often haven't been given that these kids are in this story, not because they're the freaks and the outcasts, 
they're in the story because their different abilities are actually part of their own unique interior power. But just to be able to recognize that everything they've earned and gotten to is a little bit difficult for them. And yet they've adjusted in whatever ways they could. And that's just part of who they are without pity, with recognition and with seeing them as whole people. I'm really glad to hear you say that because I was very cautious about that. I had some trepidation about writing a story about people who did sort of labor with these physical disabilities because I myself, I mean, besides the whole vision thing, am relatively able-bodied. And it felt like like a risk that I was taking, but at the same time, I really wanted to do them justice. Mm -hmm. And again, thinking logistically, these were, you know, they have a whole explanation for why they were the children who were left in the orphan house when, you know, why, why they were the ones who were there when they were pulled out. I think that I wish very much that the world could change to accommodate them, that they didn't always have to adapt Mm -hmm. in the same way that I wish that my sister-in-law, who was in a wheelchair for years, could have come to our town and found a restaurant to eat in, you know, which she couldn't do because we live in a very charming little mountain town where all of the restaurants are in old houses with steps up to them. Wow. And it's a different way of looking at the world. I really wanted to be careful to write those kids in a way that not just showed them as being whole people, but that sort of respected who they were now, you know, that they weren't broken people that needed to be fixed. Right. You know, I didn't want the power at the end. At one point I considered with Anya, the woman with the bad vision, I considered having Judah say, well, you know, maybe I could fix your, your vision, but I decided that these were not things to be fixed. They were problems that, Problems is probably not even the right word, but they were just part of who the, all of these people were. Right. You know, that just reminds me of, you know, cause we learn about the world through memes now, and sometimes they're actually mm-hmm. very instructive, but I remember when Stephen Hawking passed, there was, there was an image mm-hmm. of going around of like, and then at the, the portal of the pearly gates into the celestial heavens, he stood up from that wheelchair and just walked his way right into the other world. And I remember very vividly a, a really brilliant woman I follow on Facebook is like, <clears throat> is this thing on? Because this is ableist as fuck. And that was right. just one of those moments of like, right. I thank you for illuminating that blind spot that I have, you know, the things we've just inherited as a, you know, a capitalist culture that puts the emphasis on being, you know, white, male, able-bodied, straight, all the different things that we are, have the privilege of dismantling in our beautiful, messy human way right now. Well, and I've also thought a lot about us as a storyteller about who I am writing for, because in the first book, there was there was a gay character and there is a gay character, but there are several gay characters in yeah. the books. But in the first book, there was a gay character who was, was called an abomination mm-hmm. by somebody else. And one of the early readers of the book came to me and was like, you can't use that word because that's a word that like my uncle calls me at Christmas. Like it's, it's too, 
much. And I did a lot of thinking about it because on one hand, like I want that impact. I want that, you know, that punch to the gut. But on the other hand, who am I punching? You know, and who am I writing for? Because it's only a punch in the gut, like a mild punch in the gut, like a symbolic, this character's awful, you know, you can't trust them sort of thing. If you're talking to a straight person who has never been called an abomination by their uncle at Christmas. But if you're talking to somebody who, for whom that's a living experience, that's a, that's an actual part, then it's an entirely different point of view. So I really worked, I try when I'm writing to think about the people who think about my readers, not as this, you know, straight, white, cisgender monolith, Mm -hmm. but, you know, because I never, obviously I never intend to hurt, you know, and I never intended to cause pain to that, Mm -hmm. that early reader. And I did. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I was writing for a different audience. I wasn't thinking about that perspective. And if you'd asked me, of course, what's the little course gay people read my books? Why not? Wouldn't they? You know, what percentage right. of the population is it? But I wasn't writing for them. I wasn't thinking about them when I wrote. So when I wrote this book, I really tried to think about the world as fully rounded. And it was important to me, even when I started the story, that this book not take place in a world that was a monolith, that it not be full of only straight white gorgeous people <laughs> I wanted yeah. I wanted the casting agency for the movie to have to work a little harder than that like Absolutely. it's a real world with yeah. that's fully populated with gay people and trans people and disabled mm-hmm. people and people of all different colors and all different shapes and all different accents and all different histories and yeah I mean I hope I succeeded you I, did- I guess we'll find out <laughs> I truly believe you succeeded in that it was one of those things I noticed and appreciated, and yet it didn't get in the way of the story. It just was very, and again, in that sense of like, right, this is a book that's being written right now. And I really valued that. And I could also tell any of your readers that Kelly Braffitt is one of the nicest people that I know. And I'm not just <laughs> actually saying that because it's it's 100% true. And I, I think you and I could explore these ideas for the rest of forever, but I want to land our not work storytelling plane with this focus on myth and mythology. That's a lot of my work and just call us into just a thought about sources for you and where some of these stories come from. I mean, your vast mythic imagination and everything you've read in your, you know, four plus decades, but is there anything in particular that kind of you were aware of as you were writing or aware of not replicating as you were writing that you wanted to say anything about? Sure. I thought I've been thinking about this story since I was literally 20 years old, which is a long time. And it's a long time to sort of magpie my way through the world, grabbing shiny things that I think will fit into the story, which is exactly what I did. One thing that I was very conscious of was I did not want to, while there is this great and storied history of fantasy novels set in a specific historical milieu, or time, or geographical location. I love those books, but I very much didn't want to do that. I didn't want it. You know, Marie Marie Brennan wrote this fantastic series of books about dragons that are set in sort of an alternate reality world. And 
that is ex geographically very much like ours, except with dragons and magic. And she gives all of the countries different names. And I kept finding myself distracted by trying to figure out which country it was. Like, is that Germany or is it Italy? And that's, you know, I love those books. That's great. You know, I love the Shadow and Bone books that take place in mythical Russia. That's great, too. I very much did not want to do that because probably partially for the same reason that I never set my non-fantasy work in real towns because I don't want to have to be beholden to a map or, you know, facts or pesky things like that. But also because I didn't want anything coming with preconceived I didn't want anybody approaching my characters or my places with sort of preconceived notions of things like I didn't want someone to read you know some the, the names in particular I tried to be very generic about some of them are French and some of them are English and then you know in this some book in particular Irish. where they actually break out some of them are Irish <laughs> a couple significantly <laughs> You know, but I tried very hard to find names that came from more than one tradition, mm -hmm. more than one place in the world, so that it would feel like a vast and storied world, mm -hmm. but not a familiar vast and storied world. Because that, I didn't want people to think, oh, this book is set in Celtic mythology or Asian mythology or whatever it is, just because I wanted it to feel fresh and new and different. and. I feel a little weird saying that to somebody whose work is mythology, that I was sort of bucking against the mythology and trying to do the thing that you do not expect. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was necessary yeah. for some reason to sort of create, perhaps to create my own mythology or to give this sense of this being a, a world that was different. You were joking with me this morning about my holidays, my fake holidays that I made up that I just sort of mention in passing. And the reason that I just sort of mentioned them in passing is that if we're going through our day and we think, you know, holiday, we think, you know, whatever holidays you happen to, to subscribe to Easter, Christmas, you know, Arbor Day, whatever, but we don't think Easter, which is the celebration of blah, 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 blah. And right. Christmas, which is the celebration of, you know, you just think because, because it's shorthand for the world. And I assume that everybody knows the mythology that you were asking me about this morning. So I didn't make it up. <laughs> can, I, can I tell our listeners the fact that as I'm reading through this book, which is, you know, full of depth and full of characters in peril and, you know, deep emotions. And then Kelly just throws in making hats for Bears Day. And I just, <laughs> it just stopped me in my tracks. It's just so wonderfully weird. And I'm like, cause it just fits. And I made the whole, my entire family be like, what do you think kind of hats do you make on bears day? And, you know, because my family knows Kelly and all, you know, there's lots of ways that it was extra funny for the Gowdy house, but it, I just, it was, it was part of your world building. And it was like, and now you can imagine bears day on your own, dear reader. You can, you absolutely can. And again, it was me sitting here in my office looking at the, I, I don't even know what I, where I got the bears. There's no bears in my office, but, and thinking what is a thing that I could easily describe that people might do on a holiday. Right. Like dying can, eggs is actually no hats. less strange than making a hat in celebration oh, of no. a bear. Right. No. Yeah. 
it makes I, it makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure a given time I could come up with a history of Bears Day and why it specifically has, but um, I kind of love just leaving it there. I got a Goodreads review once that was that says something like, "She mentions all of these things and then she never explains them," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's the fun of it." You get to figure it out on your own. It doesn't matter right now. And that's why, you know, if it, all of the luckiest readers get to read with friends, I mean, the luckiest of luckies get to read their friends' books, but for, you know, the vast majority of us who get to read with a friend and then talk about like, so what did you think Bear's Day was, or any of these other much more serious elements of this book, which are all really remarkable. Kelly, it's been such an honor to just talk with you about this. And I'm just, I'm still kind of just walking around holding my copy today. Ah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. When listeners get to read this book, they can guess which one of those names from the book might feature my family members. The Irish names might have a coincidence. Yes. Just just a mere coincidence. (laughs) So, well, Kelly, thank you so much. Where can folks, I mean, they can get your book wherever fine books are sold, right? The Broken Tower. They can get my books wherever fine books are sold from your favorite purveyor of fine literature. I will say that if you would like a signed copy of my book, that can be obtained through Oblong Books and Music in Rhinebeck, New York. They ship. They're lovely. I can personalize it to you and your cat and your best friend. Absolutely. So that would be my recommendation. Absolutely. I will make sure that a link to Oblong is in the show notes. So, well, Kelly, thank you so very much. I'm excited for your next book, wherever it may be. And I'm going to have you on the show again at some point, just because we had such a darn good time. Yeah, absolutely. This is wonderful. Thanks so much, Marisa. Thank you. Quick question for you before we say goodbye today. Do you have stories within that are yearning to come through? I want to tell you about the Sovereign Writers Knot. It's my online writing community for creatives, healers, seekers, and dreamers. In this online writing group, we gather together to explore our stories. You don't have to come with any specific agenda. You only have to come with a willingness to meet yourself on the page and a desire to create community with other writers who are on a quest to do the same. You can learn more over my website, marisagowdy.com slash sovereign dash writers. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at notworkpodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. Music on the show is provided by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Our intro music draws together a number of tunes dating back to the 18th century and is entitled The Cape Breton Salute. Find more about their music and shows at billionbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, 
Ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.